Hey everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Not a Savior. I'm your host, Melissa Godin. Today we have with us RJ Kalaf, who's a senior at NYU pursuing a degree in politics, rights, and development, and a minor in social entrepreneurship. He's a Dalai Lama Fellow and the president of the NYU Muslim Students Association. He's also the founder and director of Lead Palestine, an organization that aims to inspire, motivate, and empower the next generation of Palestinians' youth through hands-on, fun, leadership-based workshop and activities. Today we're going to speak about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what it means to be a third-generation refugee. So without further ado, here's our interview with RJ. I hope you enjoy. Hey, RJ. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here today. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd start off by asking um, you to speak about some of the disparities that exist um, between the ways in which refugee camps are depicted in the media versus the way that they actually exist in reality. In your view, how effectively do media portrayals of refugee camps in Palestine capture the reality of what it means to actually live there? Cool. Uh, yeah. Hey, Melissa, thank you first so much for having me. Um, super, super pumped to just kind of have this conversation with you today. Um, it's really interesting, to, to say the least, um, in, in regards to how refugee camps are depicted um, in the media, in pr- whether it's print media or, or movies or TV shows or even the news. Um, I think we're very quick to jump into this monolithic view of re- refugee camps where we automatically assume just a row of tents. Um, and while many are like that, uh, you can look at, like, example, um, in Zatari refugee camp um, on the border of Jordan and Syria, um, or you might even look at some of the refugee camps in Bangladesh um, where Rohingya refugees are, fl- are fleeing um, you know, ethnic cleansing. Those are very temporary or just very recent camps that are, in that regard, tense. However, um, like for example, in the case of Palestine, they're not really so much tense because they've been there for so long. So in that regard, the refugee camps are kind of more permanent. Um, and so when you look at it, what you actually end up seeing is like concrete buildings. Um, and you see stores and you might even see schools and you see mosques. And um, it's really not anything like you would um, might imagine a refugee camp to be. Um, and I think it's really important for people to understand that because these conflicts, especially in the case of Palestine, um, you know, the occupation of Palestine has been going on for so long, since 1967. And so there are literally generations of people, even since 1948, that have fled their homes and have been forcibly removed from their properties uh, to to really kind of migrate to a new spot. And for many of them, it is that refugee camp. Um, and so to give you an idea of what that might look like in that regard, um, these are buildings that do not have proper building permits. And so what that means is that it's a pretty shoddy job of actually building the building. And you see in the case of New Oscar refugee camp, which is right outside of Nablus in the West Bank, um, you see buildings that are two, three stories tall that are only meant, they're only built on foundations that are set to withstand a building of one or two stories. So suddenly it's already really dangerous. Um, wiring itself, like so electrical wiring um, throughout the buildings, you know, it's not necessarily professionals doing it. It's people who are just trying to do their best, but oftentimes this leaves a lot of the electrical equipment, the, the wires actually exposed. So for young kids, babies that are born and running around and just being kids, it poses a great risk to them in that they might um, actually electrocute themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of an idea of what 
um, a refugee camp in the case of Palestine might look like. Mm-hmm. So in, in what ways are, are Palestinian refugee camps um, different from the other refugee camps that have been popping up around Europe? And how do Palestinian camps differ even amongst each other? Um, so in the sense of the Palestinian refugee camps, like in relation to other camps, um, I would just say the biggest issue is that issue of permanence. Um, it's really hard to fathom, but I mean, there are like in some camps, three generations of people that have lived in a singular Palestinian refugee camp. But let's say you go to Greece where a lot of Syrian refugees have fled to, that's just going to be a very new refugee camp where most of the people there, like they're the first generation of people to be, on, be in that refugee camp. And God willing, they're the only generation of people to be in that refugee camp. Um, but meanwhile, in Palestine, it's just really, really that issue of permanence. Um, and then in regards to how Palestinian refugee camps might differ from one another, uh, I think because of that issue of permanence, you've just seen different um, kind of social issues develop between the different refugee camps. So in the same way that like different towns here in the United States or in Canada or in the UK might just have different challenges, it's the same way in the camp. Um, and while some challenges might be the same, you know, you just have different politics, different family dynamics, but maybe um, different relationships with the local police or different relationships um, in regards to drug abuse. Um, maybe one refugee camp might offer more social programs for the kids versus another one. Um, and so it, it's, it's just challenging in that you, there's not one singular um, like approach that you can take to just dealing with refugee camps in Palestine, but there does have to be some level of like specific curation of like activities and programs to really address the different nuances that might come within the refugee camps in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And so what's particular about being a kid um, who's the third generation in their family to be a refugee? And, and what are some of the challenges that kids face in this environment? Oh, it's... It, I mean, it's so challenging, Melissa, I think, just to be a kid, to grow up in this camp. Um, and I'm going to kind of more transition to, like, the case of, like, Nuwaska refugee camp because that's the one where I'm, I'm most familiar with and I've done the most research. But so just kind of think about it like this. If, if, you're, if your grandparents lived in this camp and, they're, and, you, and your parents were born in this camp and they grew up there, and you're born in this camp, and by every metric and the way it all looks, you're also going to uh, be raised, and you might have children in this camp as well. That really creates a dangerous precedent for like your ability to actually move out of that circle, move out of that dynamic, move away from that trend. Um, you just kind of look at that situation, and really you begin to lose hope because no one, frankly, wants to live in these refugee camps, but I will say that a lot of these uh, children also do have pride from where they come from. You know, it's not necessarily the situation of complete despair and say, boo-hoo, we're refugees, but they're very prideful people and they do take pride in where they come from and their culture. But nonetheless, I mean, there is that situation of like a lack of hopelessness, a lack of hope um, and a real hopelessness that really develops within the refugee camp. And so as a kid, as you grow older and you're just really not feeling hopeful in your future and your capacity to grow as an individual and to make changes, um, that begins to really develop in dangerous ways. Um, And so whether that might be in terms of just drug abuse, um, because you kind of fall into the wrong crowds and there's just um, 
unhealthy social pressures, or it might turn into um, a um, you know you dropping out of school to just try and make money to help your family bring in some extra cash. Um, but you know, in a situation in Palestine where you know almost education is like your only way out. You dropping out of school is really not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Or even if you do make it to high school, so many of these students can't even afford to go to college. Um, and so even then, that becomes all that more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and so when that happens, um, kind of who they look up to as mentors, as leaders, as people to look up to, a lot of times it's um, more of the local martyrs or the people that have been arrested. And these are the people that have really um, – at least in their community's eyes, have stand, stood up for the rights of the community and stood up for um, the rights of Palestinians. Um, I think from a Western approach, when we think of martyrs, it, it, it's it's immediately seen as this like very bad thing, um, almost like a terrorist. Um, and it's just important for people to understand like the the perception that 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 a martyr might have within a refugee camp, because. You know, the way they see it is this is someone that just gave up everything just to stand up for the rights of their family, their communities, and for Palestine. And so for a lot of these young, despondent kids, that's just what they want to be. I mean, they just want to be like seen as heroes. And they want to they want to be the people that, that bring an end to the suffering in their communities. And so for so many of them, that's kind of the way out. Yeah. So this kind of context of, of hopelessness breeds an environment in, in your eyes for that's right for radicalization. Yeah. Uh, and I think like radicalization is like almost just like a, it's, it's like such a touchy word right. because like we hear like radical, um, and, and it, it like instantly means for me, something like just really terrible and bad. And I'm not saying being a martyr is good in any regard, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it really does force you to, to, to a new extreme and, and, and to, to really just shake off. Yeah. Do you think that Palestine is a war zone? It is. Absolutely. Palestine is um, a war zone. Um, but it's not necessarily a war zone in how media might depict a war zone to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what war zone in the context of Palestine is, it's more like a daily presence of military forces. It's a daily presence of checkpoints. Um, I here in the United States or in Canada or the UK, we don't have to go through checkpoints every day. We don't have to deal with people checking our IDs while holding machine guns. Um, we are allowed to protest and we're allowed to speak out and we're allowed to call for um, truth to, to injustice. Mm-hmm. You're just not able to do that in Palestine. In Palestine, if you protest um, against uh, Israeli security forces or against the state of Israel, you are instantly... Um, at risk for being arrested, if not killed. Um, and so for like a lot of these kids just growing up and their family members or friends or relatives um, or neighbors or whoever, whoever it might be, like they, they grew up with stories and seeing people very close to them arrested in the middle of the night, taken away from their homes. Um, for many times, faulty charges are charges as simple as just, um, just protesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that regard, it is a war zone. And, and that constant, that constant like, uh, one might say microaggression. I would just call it straight-up aggression. This constant level of aggression um, that these kids have to grow up with, that's frankly a war zone. Mm-hmm. 
So in response to all these issues we've talked about, you've decided to launch, um, or you launched last summer, a leadership camp for Palestinian children growing up in this environment called Lead Palestine. So let's take a listen to this promotional video about Lead Palestine's mission and goals. Palestine is an initiative where we aim to inspire, motivate, and empower the next generation of Palestine's youth. We intend to implement a hands-on summer program for children within Palestinian refugee camps. Through mentorship and hands-on engagement, we hope to teach these kids fundamental leadership skills that they can apply to better themselves and their surrounding communities. One is not born a leader. They go through experiences throughout their lives to help them become one. We hope to offer some of those experiences. These children played no role into the situation in which they were born into. But we believe that they can have a say into how it plays out. With Lead Palestine, we hope to work with the youth, for the youth. We are working diligently to design a sustainable, impactful, and meaningful program. Can you tell us a bit about your personal journey in founding this camp? Yeah. Um, so Lead Palestine's beginning, I would say, go, goes back to um, when I was 14 years old. I was volunteering in a refugee camp for the first time. Um, and I was actually volunteering in New Oscar refugee camp um, right outside of Nablus, the camp that we've been talking about for a bit. And um, it was there that I was offered my first cigarette by a 12-year-old um, refugee named Odei. Odei is like an unbelievably beautiful, kind young kid um, who just grew up in this dangerous situation. He just grew up in a refugee camp. And for him... Smoking cigarettes is just kind of the way that he shows his manhood um, and shows his worth. And in that moment, um, when I'm offered this cigarette by this kid, um, I didn't really think much of it besides kind of, oh, this is funny. Palestinians just smoke a lot. And why is this kid offering me a cigarette? Uh, but I guess it stuck with me for for frankly, the rest of my life. Um, and kind of as the years went on, I began to think more about it and try and understand, um, you know, what, what leads this kid to smoking a cigarette, like what's going on. And with that came more understanding of the, um, the occupation of Palestine, the conflict, um, the history of the conflict. Um, and it kind of then began me down this path of, um, I don't know, just, just like learning and, and just research. Um, and so then I've always also believed in the power of leadership. Um, I've been involved with leadership organizations and different um, like roles within leadership since, since middle school. Um, I was like student body president in middle school. I was student body president in high school. I was class president for two years in high school. Um, and so I'm all, I was always that like student council kid. I was always that kid that was planning events or, you know, get trying to get people to go to rallies or plan spirit days or, um, you know, I just, I just really went, I went to leadership conferences on a regular basis, um, throughout high school. And so for me, leadership was just a big thing in my life. Uh, and it was from a very early stage. I, I just always saw myself as a leader. Um, and I really just have a passion and interest for, um, understanding leadership. And, and by that, you know, what makes a good leader, you know, what are the different kinds of leadership? How do I, how do I develop my own leadership skills? So kind of when you bring those two together, 
um, it kind of made for the perfect union my sophomore year when um, I was taking a class called um, Principles of Social Entrepreneurship. And the professor, uh, Joshua Spodek, um, had assigned us a task throughout the course of the semester to identify an unmet need and create a solution to that unmet need. And so pretty early on in that class, I knew that the unmet need for me was this issue, this situation in Palestine where I just saw uh, real hopelessness. I just really saw the kids just struggling. Um, and I had a much um, less defined understanding of, of the unmet needs, uh, you know, two and a half years ago when I began this process. But I did know that there's a situation where these kids really lack empowerment. And I really fundamentally believe that leadership can help um, help empower these kids. If we can help these kids understand that their, their own leadership potential, their own leadership skills, their strengths, then we might be able to begin to change this narrative. And it also, from the very beginning, it operated on this assumption and belief that leaders are not made, are, are not, leaders are not born, they are made. Um, that that is the core belief of lead palestine that it's with with leadership it's not so much about the personality of an individual but the skills that they learn um and so in the very beginning the plan was um to move to the gaza strip for two years and quite literally develop student councils up and down the gaza strip um and i think very early on i realized um how um kind of how outlandish and unrealistic that plan was. Um, I didn't have the resources to go to the Gaza Strip for two years. I didn't know the people. The political situation wouldn't allow me into it, even in the first place. And there really was no way to really guarantee um, my security in, in any regard. So over the course of those years, um, I began to kind of shift my focus and redefine and redefine and redefine my plan. Um, and it went from a two years in the Gaza Strip to three months in the West Bank to one month in the West Bank to a week-long summer camp in the West Bank. Um, and kind of the way I like to describe it is with this analogy. Um, so like I mentioned to you earlier, Melissa, um, my family, we, we sell fossils and minerals and crystals and gemstones. Um, and so in the process of mining, let's say like a quartz crystal, what you might see in a shop is a small, really beautiful, clear crystal. But it doesn't start off that way. When these miners come across it in Brazil, they actually come across a huge boulder, a huge stone. And this stone is just, there's all kinds of rocks and crap. And I mean, it, it takes like fine precision and, and, and just chipping away at all these rocks and all these imperfections to get it to that core, small, beautiful crystal. So whereas you might have something that's only a few inches long, a few inches big, you might have started off with like a boulder that was like a couple feet wide. Um, and that's kind of how I like to think about this process for the Palestine. What started off as a very big boulder with lots of rocks that, that, that was just kind of in the way, um, I really had to chip away at it in order to get to that really small, beautiful crystal. Yeah, I mean, that that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, I guess one of my, my questions is, is how did you change these kids' perception of, of leadership? What was their perception of leaders before you guys even started? Yeah. Um, so we kind of had anticipated that the students identify leaders and um, 
and, and see leadership as just something that's associated with management and with authority. Um, so we kind of had an idea that if we ask them, like, who's a leader, they're going to say some sort of military figure or politician. And so we had asked every single student on the first day of camp, who, who is a leader and what, how do you see leadership? And we were totally right in our assumption. Almost every single student identified um, a leader as just the president or um, some sort of military figure. And so the reason why that's important is because if you are a kid that only sees leadership as management, as authority, then you're suddenly starting to think about things like charisma and yelling and just like public speaking um, and like a very forceful type of personality. And so if you're a quiet, shy kid in the back of the classroom, especially if you're like a young woman in the back of the classroom, that's going to be super hard for you to see yourself as a leader. And so over the course of this camp, we really began to ask these kids questions and just, just kind of have conversation with them, but also show them that leadership is communication. Leadership is love. Leadership is kindness. Leadership is working together with a group of people towards a common cause. And we did that by just engaging in different workshops with them, like the marshmallow challenge, where you break students up into five or six people to work together to design the tallest freestanding tower with a marshmallow on top using uncooked pasta, tape, string, and a singular marshmallow. Um, and after that, you engage in reflection questions with the kids. What did you learn? What worked? What didn't work? Was there someone that stepped up as a leader? How did communicating with your teammates help you? And then you finally ask them, how can you relate this to your daily life? And so over the course of this camp, we did all kinds of workshops like with a similar structure to that. Um, and it's, it's really that, that challenging or difficult of stuff to do. All it just requires is just, um, just, just, I think, goodwill and, and students that are willing to take part in these games and just reflect on the questions afterwards. And the reflection component is huge because you know, very, very quickly, they're able to see, oh, wait, like leadership is something a little bit different. And I can see myself a lead as a leader in this capacity or in that capacity. And so by the end of the camp, one of the most amazing um, and powerful things about it is that nearly every single student then identified a leader as a parent, a coach, a teacher, a mentor. And the reason why that's so important is because now leadership is close to them. Leadership is something that they can see themselves as. Leadership is something that they can feel and touch and ultimately work for. And that view of leadership is suddenly so much more empowering than just seeing a politician or a military figure as a leader. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick up on, on that last point um, because obviously that changing perception, what a leader looks like, was one of the, the results from this camp. But I was wondering if you could just speak more broadly about what were the tangible results that you saw? I mean, this camp took place last summer, so you've had, I imagine, four months to kind of reflect and 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 reconsider what the the value of, of this program was. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot of takeaways from this program. Um, so beyond the fact of students being able to see leadership through a different lens, we saw um, an increase in students' individual, um, like, sense of self-worth, uh, sense of capacity, we saw, we just saw so many instances of students suddenly um, like believing in themselves in ways that they didn't believe in themselves. We saw students being able to communicate in ways that they were, were not previously able to communicate in. Um, what we were able to do was 
we were able to give these students spaces where they could ask questions that they were not asked before. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most like just awesome yet simple things that we did was um, we designed Lead Palestine uh, notebooks and we gave each student a notebook for their reflections. And I think in the beginning, you might have saw some students really annoyed to have to use the notebooks, especially like the 15-year-old boys who were kind of your macho men type. Um, but by the end of the camp, students were literally asking us, can we reflect? Can we have more time on reflections? Can we talk more about this stuff? Um, because suddenly where they kind of had to put up a front for all their life and try and be someone that they're just not just to fulfill a role or just to be seen as strong or whatever, um, their journals was a space for them to really be vulnerable with their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings. Um, and that's really important. And that's like a long lasting tool that hopefully they can use for the rest of their lives. They don't need lead Palestine. They don't need that lead Palestine journal to show them the power of reflections and, and, and journaling and just having that space to, to be with your own mind and your own thoughts. Um, and so that's something that I'm, I'm especially proud of. Um, and I think if, if everything else fails with Lee Palestine, the fact that we just gave these students a space um, to reflect and to begin to ask themselves in a, a healthy, safe way, is, um, I think that's a, that's a huge um, accomplishment. Mm-hmm. What didn't go well? You know, what were some of the, the biggest challenges that you guys faced? Yeah, there's lots of things that didn't go well. Um, <laughs> but um, I think for me, when I when I reflect on the summer, one of the things that frankly I'm, I'm most disappointed in myself with is um, we, we had a hard time of actually choosing which students we wanted to be in this camp. We needed, we needed 30 students, and we needed 30 students that were going to be able to come every single day. We also wanted students that were aged between 12 and 15 years old because we were operating like off of this research that tells us, you know, adolescence is in that time period and adolescence is a key time for growth. And if we can intervene during this time of adolescence, then we can make long lasting, impactful change in these kids' lives. Cool. But there is a disconnect between sometimes what like a textbook might say about children and just what children might say about children. <laughs> and, um, and that's something that I kind of learned. And so there was, there was, there, there, we ha- kind of had this challenge where we worked so hard to recruit certain kids. And I mean, just like chased after them and, and, and worked with the camps, the, 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 the youth, um, the youth center to really recruit these kids. Um, and to the point where while we had tried so hard to get these kids, like a few of them just didn't come back. I don't know why. I don't know if they weren't interested. I don't know if they were bored. I don't know if they were busy, um, but whatever it is, they just didn't come back. And so that alone was hurtful. But the fact is we had turned away kids who had really wanted to be part of our camp to try and get these other kids that we were just trying to recruit. Um, I mean, there was there was like a 9 and 10-year-old kid that we would see all the time. I mean, and just really kind, like nice, funny kids. And they were adorable. They were beautiful. Um, they brought a lot of light and joy to me and they would tell me, and that means sign me up, sign me up. And I would tell them, no, I can't. I'm sorry. You're too young. Um, next year I'll sign you up. I mean, and they would ask me that every single day. 
And I just told him no. And um, because I was just like so, so stuck on this, um, on this age range that I was trying to get. And, you know, when right in front of my eyes, there was like two or three kids that had totally wanted to be a part of it. That would have been so enthusiastic um, in our, in our workshops, in our camp that we just turned away all, all, all because there were two or three kids that didn't even come back in the first place. Um, and so if I could go back in time, I, I would have signed up those kids and I would have uh, had allowed them to take part in our camp. So I think in some ways that's kind of one of the biggest challenge. Um, I knew that nothing was going to go as planned. I knew that we had to be flexible and in many ways we were flexible, but I feel like in a situation where that flexibility really mattered, um, I just wasn't flexible. Mm -hmm. And so how did the kids in the community respond to you? I mean, you're an American who has, you know, heritage in, in Palestine, but how did the fact that you, you know, are born and raised and educated in the U.S. shape the way that you interacted with others or that others interacted with you? Um, yeah, I think, that, and, that, and that's super important. I mean, what you're talking about is um, almost like a clash of cultures and um, like a sense of, cultural understanding and sensitivity that's super, super important when you're working in these camps. Um, and I would say, I mean, to answer your question most directly, we were very well received. Um, uh, it was just people were just unbelievably kind and nice to me and um, they were welcoming and I get, they were just happy to have me there more than anything. And that, that was really nice. However, something that we also want to take into really important consideration is that uh, a lot of these programs um, that work with kids, um, they they, uh, they they bring in international volunteers, and so they they fly in like very well qualified people from the United States or from Europe or from wherever, and people with like unbelievably great intentions and who might have like great ideas, but it's just it's just so problematic you just can't bring in international volunteers to work with these with these programs i think especially if you're talking about youth empowerment and you're trying to build up these kids with hope and tell them that they matter and all that stuff um because what you do is you might work with the kids for a week a month maybe maybe an entire summer but then what happens do you leave right like you go back home you go like in my case we go back to nyu we go back to manhattan new york city and meanwhile all these kids are living in a refugee camp and suddenly that, that communication and that, that link is just kind of cut off. Uh, and so in understanding that problem, um, we hired local university students to serve as camp counselors. So these were the kids, these were the people that made the connections with the students on a daily basis. These were the people that taught the students the lessons um, and that now serve as the mentors to these students. So whereas before a lot of challenges come with um, like, you just kind of leave and you leave these kids stranded. Um, these university students live there. They're, they're from the area. They're from Nablus. Um, you know, they're a 15 minute drive away versus a 15 hour flight. Uh, and, and I think that was also one way that we were able to really mitigate, um, that potential catastrophe of, um, of just, really leaving these kids potentially in a worse part, uh, worse spot than they were before. Mm -hmm. 
So as you know, Not a Savior is meant to serve as a learning tool for people to not only learn more about social justice issues like this one, but also to find ways to become more effectively engaged. Um, and, and so I guess I'm wondering, what would you tell someone who wants to become more involved in this issue? I know that when you and I spoke before recording the show, you said that one of the questions that preoccupied you was, how do you stop the bleeding? And I guess I'm mm-hmm. wondering, to what extent can we leverage our power and privilege in the U.S. or Canada or wherever, wherever it is that we come from to effectively help Palestinians, you know, to, to as you put it, stop the bleeding? Yeah, I think, I think it's... Um... It's super important that we all work to leverage our individual privileges to help these people. And it's important for us to see what we can do in our own situation. And so from that perspective, a lot of these challenges that are facing these these children are systemic policy problems. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it's literally rooted in policy. And the fact is, the United States really backs a lot of this policy. The fact the United States really backs a lot of the Israeli policy towards Palestinians. So you as an individual, um, you might get tired of hearing about this, especially in today's political climate, but you gotta call your elected officials. You gotta you gotta hold your elected officials to a higher standard and you know, hold them accountable to the fact that like Palestinian kids are being put into tremendously terrible conditions. I mean, Palestinians, I think in general, but if you really just want to focus on kids, you got to like reach out to your elected officials and tell them about the problems, talk to them about the challenges that matter to you. And you got to ask them as your constituents, because you're the one, like they work for you. You don't work for them. They're not better than you in any regard, but you got to tell them that you expect them to do the right thing and to um, support policies that benefit people, not, not only seek to oppress people. Mm-hmm. Um, where you can donate, donate to organizations that are creating um, impactful, long-lasting work um, that's sustainable. I mean, you really want to look at that issue of sustainability. That should be a super important question that you ask in any donation, in any organization that you donate to. How is this work going to pan out in the long run? Um, so many times, um, I think even with good intentions, people create initiatives that really focus on the solution, but not the problem. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, they might think about something that just sounds really good or looks really great. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really address the core problem, the root problem. Mm-hmm. And so we have to always work to design solutions that, that are not so much about the aesthetics, right? But solely about does this really address the root of the problem does this does this stop the bleeding or or does it just address another part of the body but never the source of that bleeding thank you so much for your time today rj for our listeners if you know any young advocates or change makers who you think we should talk to please nominate them by emailing melissa godant 21 at gmail.com that's m-e-l-i-s-s-a-g-o-d-i-n 21 at gmail.com If you like our show, please remember to rate us on iTunes. I'm also very excited to announce that we have launched our new website, so please check it out at notasavior.weebly.com. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y.com.